Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. When you turn on the mainstream media, pop onto social media, or just look out your living room window, you'll find a sea of people who exist cocooned in a bubble of entrenched thinking. Renowned philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called these people the herd. Today, they're known as progressives. And if you are a vapor, you can't escape the brutal fact that the war on vaping is a progressive effort to deny you the right to decide what you can put in your own body and how you might choose to mitigate risk. Joining us today to talk about Nietzsche and more is conservative firebrand and talk radio show host, Vicki McKenna. Vicki, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for the invite, Brent. I appreciate it. And, you know, we're going to talk about Nietzsche. Oh, well, yeah. This, does, is, yes. this is going to be a really upbeat show. <laughs> Well, this is a vaping topic slash COVID, so you know we do the best we can on Upbeat. But it is good to see you, and it's amazing we haven't had you on the show yet. And now, I left out uh, one of the most important details about you, and that you are OG vaping advocate. Tell us about that. All right. I, way back when, before anyone knew what these things were. Uh, so 2007, the technology was introduced. In 2008, I had my hands on um, an e-cigarette, one of the original Sigalite uh, devices, this really cheap thing called an e-puffer. And I was goaded into buying one of these things. I used to, on my show, I used to feature a segment where I would try as C9 TV products, you know, kind of crazy products that look too good to be true. And one of my coworkers had said, check this thing out. This is, this is kind of nuts. This is right up your alley. So I bought one and I, I, you know, I got it. I unwrapped it. My, I vaped on it and I coughed and I thought, whoa, this thing made me cough. That's kind of interesting. And I kept using it. And so kind of proof of concept, you know, it was, it wasn't the device that ultimately got me to quit smoking, but it got me to talk about it on my radio program. So I host a radio show in Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin, um, on our iHeart, our iHeart station. And so I would talk about this and it was kind of nuts. And I would tell people, you know, I think this is a proof of concept. I don't know if it's going to work. Um, it seems like it would be great at a rock concert. It seems like it would be great at, you know, I, I don't know. I was thinking church. Um, and yes, I faith in church. And, uh, and no one's caught me yet. And so I, I got people, I didn't, couldn't even believe I did this. People went and bought these things. And before I knew it, before I even used it to quit smoking, I had people emailing me saying, you got me to quit smoking. Thank you so much. And uh, back in, in 2010, finally, I met some of those people. Um, they invited me out. I met them. They, so the, the, the technology had evolved into a better battery, better atomizers, you know, um, more powerful. And I tried one of these new devices, and I haven't looked back. And that was October 8, 2010. Wow. So from 2008, I'm advocating till 2010. 2010, I'm a user. And I, and I quit smoking and 23 years of a pack a day. And, and this was the thing I, I had a pack of cigarettes, four cigarettes left in a pack. I started to use this thing. I never finished that pack of cigarettes. And for me, it was actually easy to use this device to quit smoking. And I never thought that was possible. And you know, Brent, I'm like everybody else. I tried the Chantix and Wellbutrin, the patch, the gum, et cetera hypnosis, laser acupuncture, which is BS, don't pay money for that, and a whole bunch of other techniques, you know. So um, this was the thing that did it, and I thought this would, I thought people would welcome the technology, you know. Certainly my listeners did, and, uh, and then 
in fairly short order, we started to see groups aligning to, to sort of, you know, intervene in the exposure of this technology to smokers. So, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people listen to you every week, I guess, in Wisconsin. Is that right? I would say I, you know, I, not, millions, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, that'd be nice. Um, certainly worldwide. You know, we are we're, we're big in Afghanistan sometimes. <laughs> uh, I used to have a couple of guys who listened in Afghanistan. So um, probably a, hundred, a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. Well, that's great. Now, so, I mean, the reason why I ask that is because we're talking 10 years ago and you're advocating on air to your listeners, I mean, are you able to today in this environment with, you know, the, the level of disinformation and, you know, demonization of vaping, are, were you more free back then to talk about e-cigarettes on the air than you are now? I am not, not free to talk about them. I talk about them quite a bit. I talk about vaping when, when the, um, you know, the story started to come in about the lung diseases. Um, it just rang wrong instantly. I, so I talked a lot about that. Um, I'm not constrained in any way. I'm more angry now about it because of the attack, because this is a public health miracle. It, it, it's going to save lives. Um, and, it's being, and it's being attacked for no reason other than you have groups that want to continue, you know, sucking on public dollars that support their entities or lobbyists that have interests, that have conflicts of interest. Um, who want to see it shut down or absorbed into big tobacco. And, and, and so that makes me angry because we should be allowed to decide for ourselves what's the best way to quit smoking. I don't want to take chances. It, ga it, it gave me wild, murderous dreams. I mean, I had bloody dreams. It was, it was, it was horrifying. Um, I don't want to take a psychoactive drug to quit smoking. I just want to quit smoking my way. And so, yeah, so now the difference is I'm, I'm just a lot more angry about it well and angry is good and you're and you're involved too before we jump into it we're going to drag our viewers here into uh some great clips from september 24th of last year during the height of the vaping related lung illness and the epidemic which had been going on for a year already uh with regard to teen vaping you uh presented some testimony at the house oversight committee hearing that was being held, uh, that was called Don't Vape, but we'll get there in, in one second. Before we do, I'd like, I'd like you to kind of share with us a little bit about what vaping advocacy looked like 10 years ago and how, and contrast that with today. Vaping advocacy 10 years ago was trying to find somebody who also tried the device and getting together and exchanging um, ideas, showing off what, you know, the new thing you found or a better atomizer, trading flavors, sharing flavors, passing uh, around, you know, little sheets of paper with websites on them. So you've got to try this guy or you've got to try this company. And, and, and it became um, fun. And then we would just go out and vape and people would walk up to us and say, uh, what is that? Or, or they get mad. They think you were smoking and you'd say, I'm not smoking. This is a vapor product. This isn't smoke. I use it to quit smoking. And the folks who had no exposure to this before thought it was cool and wanted to know more about it. And I, I re recall being in a Walgreens um, and I, you know, I sneak the puff and, um, and a lady came up to me and she was angry and she said, you can't smoke in, in the Walgreens. It's a Walgreens. And I explained to her what it was that I, I use, this is not a cigarette. It's a, it's an e-cigarette. It's vapor, water vapor. A little bit of vegetable glycerin and propylene glycol, and 
and and there's no particulate matter. And I kind of immediately kind of launched into this quick evangelism. And she was so interested. She I wrote information down. She said, I'm trying to get my son to quit smoking. Uh, my mom, who had horrible lung, uh, horrible lung disease, COPD, ultimately developed lung cancer from um, 25 years of smoking. Uh, but she couldn't be around cigarette smoke when she finally quit. So she couldn't be in a car with me. She, you know, she couldn't. So I started vaping and she was amazed and, and thrilled. And so my mom would walk up to smokers outside the Walmart, something like that, and say, oh, you should quit smoking. And my daughter has this really cool thing called an e-cigarette. And here's her phone number. And she'd hand out my cell. And you should call her. And sometimes people would call me. And I would be able to explain how cool it was and give them websites and, and try to, you know, get them information so they understood that there was an option besides the FDA-approved treatments that didn't work for most of us. So it was, it was, it was more fun back then. Now it's, it's, you know, war. You have to go to war to defend our right to vape. And unfortunately, not enough people who use these products understand that they have to be activists if they want to protect access to these, what I, again, call a public health miracle, the things that, are, that, are, that we are crediting with saving our lives. So let me ask you this, Vicki, and I mean, it's important, too, for our coverage. You know, it's a little bit disheartening. Even today, I had um, one of our oldest supporters uh, with RegWatch, very, very close to us, you know, kind of fly off the handle because our content has gotten more political lately and had commented that this is being buzzed around uh, with, you know, around the vaping world. And I'm just like, how could it not be political? It's just with your eyes open, there's only one side that is dedicated to destroying vaping and to not recognize who that enemy is and put a label on it. I, I you know, To me, it's just incredible to even call it politics. It's not politics for me. It's just using my eyes and my brain. Well, now, and for me, it's, it's my life. You know, this is what I do. And if it, it, it's been hijacked by politics, that's not my fault. It's not your fault, Brent. It's not anybody's fault, but it's been hijacked by politics. And admitting that, admitting it is the first step <laughs> in recognizing you've got to be part of the activism. And that's right. And, you know, we've, and we've been covering this for years and saying this for years. So I don't, I know that it, everything is a lot sharper these days because, of course, progressives are trying to destroy the Western system. They've kind of had their way with vaping and now they moved on to something they feel is a little more important, like destroying capitalism. But, you know, we'll leave that for a second. This hearing that you were at in September, did Republicans organize this hearing? This hearing was organized by Democrats. Um, this hearing, by the way, I was invited to as uh, just presenting, you know, the why do you use flavors? This is what, you know, we want you to explain why you use flavors, how e-cigarettes have helped you. Um, I was invited by the Republican side. Uh, it was called Don't Vape. I did not know that until I got to the, to the Rayburn building and sat in the office that I saw the sheet, and it's called the Don't Vape hearing. And I'm, and I'm thinking, why didn't you tell me that it's the Don't Vape hearing? I look around expecting to see people like you. Right. Or, or people like Dr. Michael Siegel or somebody else, you know, somebody um, who's got, um, you know, maybe a background in epidemiology or something. I'm the only expert they invited. No, so, I'm not kidding. I was the only expert invited by the Republican side <laughs> and the Democrats had four people. They had a woman whose daughter had been injured by vaping. And we found out during the hearing 
that she had not vaped nicotine and gotten injured, but had vaped THC, you know, no doubt, uh, cut with vitamin E oil, vitamin E acetate. That's me, Vicki Porter, by the way. I was told I had to use, I couldn't use my air name. So your, so, your, your they, stage name. Sorry, I have to say it, stage name. Stage name. Yeah, but, yeah <laughs> exactly. So, um, which is an interesting story, but also a distraction. So they had four, and they, including this woman with a sad story about her, how her daughter almost died um, by vaping. And, and, you know, in her testimony, she didn't explain that her daughter had used um, THC, uh, THC cartridge, illegal THC cartridge. That was, you know, thankfully, a couple of the, um, the minority members had asked her that question, and she, um, she was honest. Um, so, Vicki, we've got, we've got uh, a clip here. Let me just interrupt you only, only because I want to make sure that I catch you before you start uh, sharing some information that we have in clips. So let me just play the first one here. And this is um, you setting the stage about, oh, my goodness, I said about like a Canadian. I'm trying to stop doing that. Okay, here we I go. say Wisconsin like I'm from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. All right, three, <laughs> two, one. My name's Vicki Porter. I'm from Lake Mills, Wisconsin. I'm 51 years old. I started smoking cigarettes in college. You know what? I even remember the evening I started smoking. i just gotten dressed to go out, and I was listening to jazz records, drinking Irish coffee. I spotted a pack of Benson & Hedges ultralights that a friend had left behind in my dorm room. So feeling invincible, I took out one of those cigarettes, and I lit it. Because what goes better with whiskey and jazz, right, than a cigarette? In just a few weeks, I was addicted to cigarettes and began a lifestyle of smoking that lasted for 23 years. After a few years of this smoking lifestyle, I realized it's not cool. It was revolting and embarrassing and deadly. But quitting smoking is very, very, very hard. Nobody tells you that. Years ago now, a coworker of mine showed me an online ad for e-cigarettes. The promise was smoking without the harm or smell. So I ordered one because I thought, what if it's real? What if it's real? And as it turns out, it's actually real. Around 2010, I stopped smoking only because of e-cigarettes. It literally changed and probably saved my life. Nine years later, my doctor says my lungs are healthy. I can climb stairs without being winded. I exercise four times a week. I can walk for miles and miles. I can do things now I haven't done since before my lungs became overwhelmed with the filth and deadly toxicity of cigarettes. Vaping is a health miracle to me because without it, I'd probably be on my way to a lung cancer diagnosis. Flavors. Flavors matter to me, an adult ex-smoker. Flavors are not an industry-driven innovation. They are a user-driven innovation. Big Tobacco didn't come up with the idea of flavors. Consumers, adult smokers like me, came up with the idea of flavors. We demanded it. We don't want our vapor to taste like cigarettes. We're trying to quit them. We want something that tastes good, that makes us want to keep vaping. Flavors keep us vaping. Flavors keep us not smoking. According to a recent survey of more than 69,000 vapors, 92% preferred non-tobacco flavors. Much has been made of the lung illnesses tied to vaping. But it's manifestly dishonest to blame e-cigarettes and nicotine liquid for these illnesses. All available information overwhelmingly suggests the lung diseases being diagnosed have exactly nothing to do with nicotine vapor products and everything to do with adulterated street drugs or products, notably oil-based THC. I've now been vaping for nine years, 
and I've never been healthier. And none of the nicotine vapor products that I use contain oil. E-cigarettes are a public health miracle that America is about to squander based on misinformation and disinformation. Great testimony. Thanks. I only had five minutes. I could have gone on. So dis the disinformation, well, it's, well, I want to end with disinformation, but just for a second, you really hammered home the flavors. Why was that so yeah. important? Um, we, are, we were talking about, and we're still talking about, banning flavors. So except tobacco flavors and menthol. Well, those are flavors, right? But tobacco flavors, and anybody who's vape, everybody listening right now who vapes and started out, you started out with a tobacco flavor, I bet. Unless you're very young and you started out on some of the, um, the newer devices like Tool and maybe you started out on Mango or something. But anybody who's been doing this for a while started with a tobacco flavor. And it's, it's not that satisfying. And so in almost, you know, immediately you look for a different flavor because the tobacco flavor tasted nothing like cigarettes. But it tasted like vaguely enough to remind you of that stale cigarette you grabbed out of the ashtray one Saturday morning after a long night of drinking. You know, I mean, it was right. it was sort of the, the ick tobacco <laughs> sensation that you could get um, kind vaguely from a cigarette. So we didn't want to keep using those. The moment new flavors came online, it started what vanilla, cherry. You know, remember these old flavors, coffee. And then uh, Johnson Creek smoke juice, I remember, became Johnson Creek vapor, and, and they were upended by the harassment by the FDA, a, a company that, that used to be five miles from my front door. Um, and then they expanded, and everybody started following their lead. You know, good manufacturing practices, sealed, uh, sealed bottles, and really inventive uh, combination of flavors. And it, was, and it was off to the races. That was the way people like me and everybody else we're able to maintain um, our smoking cessation because it didn't taste like smoking. It tasted great, and it gave us the nicotine without all of the um, the associated harm and, and risk of cancer. That's an important point to make. I mean, even for myself, I started vaping in 2015. One of the things that was the revelation for me was was walking into a store and seeing all those flavors. I mean, it, for, so for I didn't actually start with the uh, tobacco. It never it was never my thing. But why did I need to have to? Because there was already thousands right. of flavors, right? And so, and what, I, and did you pick? Did you pick something like, um, you know, I don't know, an adult flavor? What's an adult flavor? Well, did, first did of all, there's there's really wild? no I picked, there's real. I I yeah. don't distinguish the two, right? I mean, adults eat ice cream and cake and all that exactly. stuff. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. So we're being told that this is all to appeal to kids when flavors have been around. Really inventive flavors have been around for you know a decade. Um, I vape. Captain Crunch, and I'm 52. Um, so, my I mean, my, ori my original is uh, my original is uh, pina colada. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that was like the base. That it was it was there. There was the first one was a a, li a lychee a lychee a lychee. It was a lychee tea kind of thing, and then but right after that, and actually one of our top supporters, I'm going to mention their name, uh, and it's uh, Flavor Crafters in Canada, and it's Jonathan Marshall. Um, so, and yeah, it's a flavor crafters, uh, uh, brand pina colada, 24, uh, organic, uh, you know, uh, 70, 30, uh, and, uh, it's still to this day, like if I'm vaping, you know, with a mod or something like that, it'll, you know, will go in there as a, as a base juice for me. So that's fantastic. So yeah, I mean, I've got my loyalties. There's no doubt. 
Sure. And and the idea that when I was trying to get, you know, across to the committee, and, and Brent, I assumed, I don't know why I'm a cynic, I assume that, you know, it's citizen Vicky goes to Washington and and I'm just gonna I'm gonna speak my you know, the truth of my own experience and it's gonna make a difference and it's gonna matter. It was it didn't matter. They didn't care. They didn't want to know about flavors. They they had an agenda. They had already set that agenda. It was called Don't Vape. There was nothing that was talking anybody, any of the Democrats in that hearing, off their position, even if that included saying absurd things like Rashida Tlaib did, which is that smoking cigarettes is safer than vaping. You know, I mean, crazy, um, but the agenda was set and it was obvious. Okay, so you know what? I don't have that on tape, uh, but it uh, tracks with the other things that she has said uh, that is crazy. Let's listen now to Rashida Tlaib. Uh, she's a U.S. rep uh, from Michigan and uh, D. And um, let's have a listen. The result is that e-cigarette use took off. Now 27.5% of high school kids use e-cigarettes, and those kids are used as guinea pigs. We are just now beginning to find out the health risks they pose. Risks like those who uh, we, we, those that are suffering from right now from it, uh, and the outbreak of lung disease and so forth. In fact, most e-cigarettes hold and discharge numerous other poten potentially toxic substances, such as I'm going to have to probably pronounce this formaldehyde. Yes, thank you. Uh, and a compound named benzene, benzene, which is found in car exhaust systems. Dr. Rizzo, what are the outcomes of inhaling such toxic substances, and are there any links to lung damage or um, heart disease? Are there any studies regarding the health risks associated with vaping? There are no long-term studies since it has only been in the marketplace here for about nine to 10 years. Yes. Likewise, the cigarette smoking process requires the user to inhale ultra-fine particles that could possibly irritate their throat, eyes, and airways. Dr. Rizzo, could you... Could these particles exacerbate respiratory alignments that affect our breathing? Particularly the ultrafine particles are very similar to the small particles that are talked about in air pollution. So they definitely get into the lung, into the bloodstream, and can affect the cardiovascular system and the lungs. Thank you. Very little uh, is definitely known about the long-term health effects of e-cigarettes use in vaping, but there is a conscience as to nicotine's dangerous effects on development of adolescent brain and increased risk of future addiction. Dr. Aziki, can you explain how nicotine impacts brain development at adolescence? So of course, the brain is still developing almost until age 26, and with nicotine, um, it, the receptors in, in pediatrics they are more susceptible to being addicted. So they get addicted quicker, and the addictions predispose to future addictions down the road. So I want to bring this point up and get your response to that. This doctor- That is infuriating the second time. It isn't as infuriating as it was the first time. Oh, I can, I can imagine that. Uh, so it seems to me that they keep nudging this age up for the last couple of years, it's been, you know, youths, teens, developing brains. They don't, brains don't develop until you're 25. They've been pushing that piece of propaganda for several years. And now she's there in front of the house saying 26. How can any reasonable person, and you know reason, how can any reasonable person actually sit there and say that a person's brain is not fully developed until they're 26 years old? Most people... <clears throat> are shot dead or dead by a horse falling on them 
you know, slipped in a stream, you know, they're killed in a war. I mean, come on. Well, um, what she was saying was that, you know, that, that nicotine is a very, 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 very dangerous um, psychoactive compound. And it's just not. It's a stimulant. You know, I mean, are kids drinking monster sodas? I bet. Uh, what's in it? Caffeine, taurine, these kinds of stimulants. So, you know, what she was trying to, to do was to say, um, you know, nicotine is like LSD or some other, you know, something like that to try to scare people. But she didn't say anything. She said nothing important that, okay, well, we've got some evidence that, um, you know, young uh, adolescent into young adult brain, brain development, um, you know, may continue to change probably at a snail's pace and modestly until you're 25 or 26. Thank you. Who cares? What does it have to do with e-cigarettes? It was Rashida Tlaib's comments about particles, friends. What particles is she talking about? And I asked Dr. Rizzo this in the hearing. What particles are you talking about? Because it's not particles. The particulate matter in smoking that is combusted uh, tobacco forms tiny, tiny, fine particles that embed themselves in your lungs. The carbon, you know, the carbon that is also attached to that is what embeds into your lungs. I, I asked him to please explain how a vapor molecule is the same as a particle. And I was, uh, I was reined in a bit by the committee chairman. So I'd also ask about benzene. Where are you getting the idea that benzene is produced by, by vaping any cigarette? We know where the formaldehyde comes from. That comes from a study um, where people just overcranked an, an atomizer to the point where the, they, you know, they, they heated it too high um, and, and produced a, mod a, a minor amount of formaldehyde. You don't vape at temperatures that produce burning. Um, and so all of this was sort of the old, easy-to-confuse suburban moms you know, propaganda that is meant to scare people away from embracing this technology and, and wanting to find out what the real advantages of the technology are. You see benzene, formaldehyde, brain damage. I mean, who the, who the heck would want to embrace this if you honestly think that benzene, formaldehyde, and brain damage are going to come from it? Now, that's a heck of a lot of uh, propaganda that's put out there. I mean, it's propaganda. It was, it, was, it was all of it almost in one statement by Rashida Tlaib. Right. Well, let's, let's jump then uh, to our, our last clip, and this is a lot of uh, Ms. Tlaib. And, um, and a curious, a curious, curious, curious thing that she brought up, and then we'll talk about it after. Even though scientists, people were saying secondhand smoking was worse, was worse than directly smoking cigarettes. And even though health experts and others were coming forward, you had big industry, corporate greed, misleading information out there to the public, what the real, real impact was on health. And so it's so important that you all continue to speak truth uh, about this um, because the long-term effects is very dangerous, especially because they have been targeted towards youth. And then, you know, Ms. Porter, I was reading, because I want to know more about you. And, and your beliefs, and I, I respect that. We all have different beliefs, but you call yourself a con con converted conservative and reformed Marxist. Are you a conspiracy theorist? I, I think my politics are entirely irrelevant to this hearing. Oh, okay. Why were you winking at one of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle? You winked. Because I know Glenn Grothman. Oh, that's what, it, so the winking, did he- He introduced me. Oh, He's a friend of mine. Okay, I understand. I didn't know what the winking was, because I thought maybe there was something like a conspiracy 
thing going on there. I didn't know. You think there's a conspiracy in this no, hearing, ma'am? No, I actually think people are speaking truth here, and you can provide information. May, may, I, ad not, may I address the no, truth? No, no, uh, no. Well, the truth to you is very different for the majority of people in this room who do right. believe that t uh, children the are being The truth for me is I like quit smoking start. with these Let's cigarettes, the and so did 8 You're million other smoking, people. You're Let's, still smoking. I'm not smoking. Thank you, thank you. And I'm not Your lying order. under oath. Order, please. So, you're still smoking. Yeah, that's what she accused me of. Do you notice that she said secondhand smoke is more dangerous than actual smoking? Yes. I mean, this is, okay. So, yes, she, um, she thought she had a gotcha. Uh, she had looked up my bio on my Facebook page and, uh, and thought she had a gotcha. But um, I did wink at Glenn Grossman. He's my friend. He introduced me at the hearing. He's a member of Congress. He's on the committee. He asked if he could introduce me. I saw him. I had said something in my testimony, and he laughed. And Glenn has got very poor eyesight, so he didn't see it. But I did wink at him because I made him laugh in the hearing, and I, you know, I thought that was kind of cool. Well, considering so that you're thought, the only you're the only expert that was called by the Republicans, I would imagine right. that you would be, you know, having a good relationship with them. Well, I had I he, I've known Glenn for years and years since he was a state rep in the Wisconsin legislature. This is before he was a state senator and way before he was a congressman. So, um, yeah, she. So let me well, let me just, ask you. Let she, me ask she you. She gave this. me a gift that when I, I got I made the top fifteen funniest video clips of two thousand nineteen. Oh, very so good. I got to thank her. Very good. So. Let's dive into the machinations that goes on in somebody's progressive brain, because she's a progressive. Uh, she's one of the AOC crowd, and she's extreme. There's no doubt. She is an extreme person. Her politics are extreme. So that being said, why do they always accuse people on the conservative side of conspiracy theories? There's something, there's a reason why they do it to discount your conclusion making. So you're there presenting conclusions that you've made based on 10 years of history with whatever it is, you know, you, you know, everybody says, speak your truth, but then she says, but your truth is a lie. Exactly. And this isn't too far off, you know, old school, um, radical, uh, you know, radical a a activism. So, you know, those of us from, of my ilk, um, we've, in fact, when I was in college and in graduate school, um, we were students of Rules for Radicals. We were students of Alinsky. And, you know, pick the target, personalize it, freeze it, polarize it, right? And what you're trying to do is, is um, dispatch your opponent by, by finding a way to turn your opponent into a boogeyman or a monster. And, um, and, and she didn't do a very good job of it in this hearing. But that's what the, that is what the progressives do. You find someone who can be used as, you know, the the um, the exemplar of everything nobody wants to be, and you use that to then paint everybody else. So, if, so I'll give you an example. If somebody shows up at a conservative uh, event with a Confederate flag, that's the person that becomes the exemplar for everybody else in the room. And Confederate flag right equals racism. So everybody in the room is a racist. That's what they do. They do it all the time. You can see it coming from a mile away. And it is aggravating that conservatives, particularly party-based conservatives, the Republican Party, 
never seem to see it coming um, and don't have an answer for it when it happens. They instead will apologize or try this. I'm not a racist or I'm not this instead of just rejecting the tactic as is illegitimate. Yeah, uh, there's a inability, I think, sometimes on the conservative side to use a very well-worn technique that anybody who knows how to deal with the media uses, and that's don't accept the premise of the question. So what, what you need to do here is not accept the premise of the attack, but it seems very hard to do that. It's not. You just don't accept the premise of the attack. Um, I didn't. In that situation, I, I am, you know, I was required under under oath to actually answer members of Congress's questions, and I was also required to do it truthfully, though there were many people not being truthful during that hearing. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I think she really thought she was going to be able to to make it sound like there was something nefarious going on, uh, and instead, happily, it boomeranged in her face. And, I mean, she became a laughing stock for a solid two weeks. Thank you. And, um, and you're welcome. And, and so it, it, it is not difficult to reject false premises if you see them coming. And you expect – I expected Rashida Tlaib to do that. I expected someone. I didn't know if it was going to be her. I was kind of happy with her. So the, um, but the I expected someone to throw my job and my politics in my face. And so right. I, I was reasonably prepared for that. So the, fa the false premise, do you think that uniquely for vaping and for vapors that it's a little hard to do that? Maybe somewhere deep down, some vapors might not know for sure whether or not if it's totally safe or maybe, you know, there are a lot of vapors who are progressives and God, God love them. I mean, our stuff here with progressives is mostly because we believe that the progressive vapors out there are the only ones that can make a difference to win this war because it's a battle coming from your side of the fence conservatives aren't going to get listened to much in this so we're you know pleading with progressive vapors to help understand a little bit some of the things that we're talking about hopefully we can give you some tools to go fight your side because unless you guys are taking care of things on your end i don't know how the heck vaping gets saved but there is a little I bit i want to know I, I would i'd love to have the progressive vapors explain to me why they think we should be allowing big tobacco companies and well-funded lobbyists and, you know, trial attorneys who donated $17 million to Democrats in 2016. Uh, and you've all seen the ads and are currently seeking lawsuit participants to sue uh, using class action loss, uh, a class action lawsuit, the makers of Juul or Blue or whoever it might be. Why do you want to protect massive global business at the expense of your local vape shop, at the expense of your choice? Uh, why do you want to line the pockets of lobbyists, people who are wearing $500 suits, who fly first class, who never, who are not being affected right now by the shutdown of this economy? They're not seeing their incomes decline. Why do you want to protect those people? What, what, what is so important about the politics protecting your politics, that you would sacrifice your mom and pop bake shop, yourself, your health, to make sure that those lobbyists and those large companies are, are the ones that are going to clean up at the end of this war. Why do you, I, I don't understand how that is a progressive value, 
how that is a liberal value, how that is a value for anybody who vapes. And you know what? My, my side it doesn't always get it right. The Republicans invited me to that hearing. They didn't invite four other experts. They, they let me go to war. A lot of those Republicans had no idea what questions to ask me. Nobody bothered to crack a book or Google, didn't do their research. So it's not as if I'm saying the Republicans are the only ones doing you know, the battle here and they're really good at it. No, right. it's conservatives, it's libertarians, and it's people who are willing to set aside the, the partisan politics to fight for themselves and, and the health and lives of other people. If you care so much about the little guy. Right. Let me let me ask you to get over this. Let me ask you something there, Vicky, because you said if you're willing to put aside the partisan politics and that's actually the heart of my question. Can you actually do that when the when it seems to be the entire side uh, of this battle is, you know, from one political ideology? So I don't think you need to be a Republican or a conservative or libertarian, maybe just a counter revolutionary, something along that lines or somewhere along the mix. But if you say put away the if you say put away the partisanship. Doesn't that isn't that always what the left and the progressives want? They force everybody to yes. put away the partisanship, and then they you see yes. you handcuff here's yourself. The thing, Brent. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm talking about. The Democrats, the elected Democrats, aren't going to put away the partisanship. Notice where we are. I mean, they're they're making COVID nineteen partisan. In in my wildest dreams, I didn't think a pandemic could be partisan. But welcome, welcome to bizarre world. Welcome to the other side of the rainbow, 2020. I'm talking about the people who vape. You put aside your partisanship. You, I can do it when I call up a, a Republican and chew them a new one. When I go on my program and criticize my team, you can do it. It's not hard. It's not hard. Everybody in politics finds a way to sell out somehow. Your guys do it. Our guys do it. Your guys do it. So this is... This is what they're selling. They're selling you out. They're selling me out. They're selling your grandma out. They're selling, you know, the future generation of young people who would otherwise pick up a pack of cigarettes instead of a jewel. They're selling them out. They're selling out the future. They're selling out choice and freedom. And I think a lot of the the elected progressives have an agenda. I think a lot of just regular old Democrats, liberals, and and peace-loving hippies just like freedom. And, and I just think we think we have a different way of getting there. So, you know, on this issue, we should be friends, not enemies, but in partisan politics, elected partisan politics, team Democrat is who you got to fight, whether you like it or not. Yeah, true. Um, you mentioned COVID. Is there an intersection between what's happened with COVID and the hysteria the public health generated hysteria over covid with that of the hysteria generated by public health over e-cigarettes so epidemic of teen vaping and then six months of incessant vaping related lung illness that rolled right into covid it did i don't know if i am willing to think that somehow these two things are related although um if it's not on the record <laughs> well and, and I'm, I'm, to be, and I'm to be clear to me with a couple of beers yeah yeah but i but, but, but look at how the, the, the junk science and the fear and the propaganda were, were shoveled out almost in, in perfect replication of talking points by mainstream press across America. Same script, 
doesn't matter if it's a dinky little, you know, weekly in your small town, or it's a big newspaper, or it's your TV station, or it's, you know, radio, whatever it might be. Exact same set of, of, of talking points and propaganda. The, the vaping illnesses, um, you know, focusing on kids, uh, terrifying mothers, and not telling the truth when we already knew the truth, that it wasn't Juul, it wasn't, uh, you know, Blue, it wasn't my local vape shop, it was illicit, adulterated, illegal THC cartridges. We knew that for months, and yet the exact same forces were feeding the exact same propaganda being replicated by the exact same press. Now, you compare that, that model to COVID, it's a, it's a perfect overlay. And of course they've done that. We know, for instance, on COVID, the models for infection are failures. The IMHE model, the Imperial College model, the Johns Hopkins model have failed. Has the media reported on the failures? We know a lot more about the disease now. We know that there are far, far more, many more people who are exposed uh, and have been infected by COVID-19 or and coronavirus. COVID-19 is the uh, actual disease. Have been infected by coronavirus and are asymptomatic. And so we know that the spread of infection is far, far, vastly, by an order of magnitude greater than we thought before. The death rate now, which we thought was going to be 2% or 10%, it's looking like it's 0.05 maybe 0.03%. So have you heard that repeated or is it the same fear? Is it the same exact set of talking points and, and not questioning shelter in place and not questioning these draconian lockdowns and not questioning the damage that's been done to the economy? Every single media outlet, with the exception of a, of a, of a limited few, have been repeating the exact same fear-based propaganda since early March. So I'm not saying that one group who promoted the lies about e-cigarettes is the same group that's promoting keeping the truth away from people about COVID. Um, but I think the same sensibility is there with both groups. Yeah, you've got a state of mind of public health that exists and that's been forever. And then that really kind of they extended, they flexed their muscles with the epidemic. And then they flexed their muscles with the vaping-related lung illness. And when they do that, they flex all of their you know, subsequent connections. So their communications campaigns and connections to mainstream media, they're you know, all the way down, filtered down to the foot soldiers of public health down at the local level. Right. All that stuff gets exercised and flexed. So it creates an entire state of mind of the, of the organism of, of that is public health. And uh, so it makes it a little easier to pull that trigger when the, the, the hysteria presented itself over COVID. And so, but allow me to put on not a conspiracy cap, though I laugh at the left when they assault those that are conservative about conspiracy because they go, well, you know, if you ever accuse a progressive or somebody on the left about conspiracy, they just, they just, it like, it's like bounces off. You know, it's like they're Superman and they're bullets, right? Because they just got so much to push that off. It's generally like, oh, what? You think we all get together and plan? And I'm like, you're the left. That's what you do. You plan, you organize, you activate. That's that's your raison d'etre is to organize and plan. And so then when we accuse them of organizing and planning, they throw it back in our face. And I, you know, everybody out there right now, the left plans. That's what they do. And so stick by it. If you see and they're good at it. And they're very good at it. And so if you see something happening, don't fail, uh, you know, call it out and stand up for what you see. Now I find it 
highly suspicious. <clears throat> That's all I'm going to say. Highly suspicious that in September, uh, the governor of Michigan, right after Labor Day, slammed down an executive order based on, you know, full on all of the powers under the, you know, the Public Health Act to exercise totalitarian control over people's right to put stuff in their own body or not to prevent themselves from killing themselves from buying a legally uh, purchased product that the government gets, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars from. So clearly the vaping related lung illness, you know, hit nationally on August 23rd in a very short period of time. The, uh, the, the government in Michigan was able to dig into uh, the Public Health Act and come up with that argument. Within September, how many other eight, nine states came out with the same types of executive orders using public health executive powers to institute totalitarian control? I find it extremely uh, coincidental or not that just months later, they use the exact same powers to lock down their entire citizens. I think it's difficult. So let's call it curious. I like to call these curious coincidences. Sure. Um, because you, it, it's, it's, it, sometimes it is hard to show a direct line. Oh, yeah. But you know the last, um, it doesn't have to be a direct line. We're talking about a network of different, um, different groups and people and idea, ideas and funding sources. So it, it, it's, not, it's often not a direct line. Um, but it could just be the logic of using public health to attack vaping, it suddenly made sense to use the logic of public health to attack capitalism. And that's what we've seen happen with COVID. And it is, I mean, I, you know, going back, did, did President Trump say, okay, governors, I want you all to declare emergencies. I want you all to declare, you know, states of lockdown. I want you to use, you know, the, the mass amount of executive authority that you have in the exact same way to shut down the American economy. No, he didn't say that. He didn't. President Trump has had no power to shut down the American economy, nor did he tee up the uh, the tools that governors use, which were these public health emergency executive authorities. Um, they just it it occurred to them. You know, I mean, there it is. We have a, we have a terrifying pandemic with predictions of death and predictions of destruction that on no planet made any sense at the beginning. Neil Ferguson's model on no planet, no rational person could have said two million people in the United States. Oh yeah, that sounds like it's gonna happen. Public health people. They said, yes, this is exactly what's going to happen. We have to act now. You want people to die if you do not act now. And in the same way that you want people to die if you do not act now and allow us to rein in this modest little innovation, um, and, and, and it works, why not see if you can't use the exact same public health argument to rein in far, you know, behaviors that offend you far more than a, and a cigarette smoker vaping and denying you know, governments their, their sales tax and excise tax revenue? So I, I don't think it's a direct line, Brent, but but it's in the it's in the realm of the thought process of of bureaucrats and public health bureaucrats who are of a progressive philosophical and political persuasion. Well, and I, I do agree on that for sure. And it is a plethora of connections and it's an ideology. It oper it moves on its own. It's you know, it's fighting uh, as an organism, really, because that's what it is. 
Um, so I do agree. But even that, even just looking at it from that point of view, it just shows about why we need to have, we fight the battles on vaping, why it's so important. Because if that battle in vaping had not, you know, if they hadn't gone nuts on vaping like they had, they would not have conflated um, uh, the THC uh, illness. Based, how do you say it? I mean, it's just such a deception. But they wouldn't have conflated that. They wouldn't have had that opportunity. And then they obviously would not have had the opportunity to go into all that legislation and in their, you know, cabinet rooms or whatever it is at the state level with their lawyers to be going, well, what can we get away with? So just the, the sheer questions that the government, you know, the governors are having with their public health professionals in August and September and figuring out what can they get away with in terms of taking Americans liberties away? That conversation wouldn't happen if it wasn't if there wasn't already this issue for vaping. So it's one of the reasons why we've seen fighting for vaping has been fighting for liberty the whole way along. And as that battle get lost, got lost, here we are with COVID. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a well, huge step on the ladder. Notice how um, we have seen vaping become a risk factor. You've seen these articles. If you go to Healthline or WebMD or any of these so-called, you know, uh, Dr. Google sites, um, Quit vaping. You you know, vaping is going to put you at risk of COVID. Based on what evidence? But it's there is almost a stated fact. And so, you know, you've seen, you, even if even if the, um, you know, the model for reining in our behavior and the model, to your point, Brent, were they thinking, what can we get away with? Even if that wasn't, you know, directly impacting the exact same behaviors in, in the way the states address COVID-19. Um, you know, they, they found a way to, to work the vaping issue into the COVID-19 issue to attack vaping. Even if you don't agree with, with us that we think um, COVID-19, the, over, the wild overreaction based on speculative models um, and zero data, and now reality checking those models saying it's time to admit you're wrong and that's not happening. Even if you don't buy this that this is this is corrupt or what has gone on with the way we've reacted to COVID-19 is corrupt. Yeah. Go I'm look at what they're doing with vaping yeah. and wrapping it into this issue to <clears throat> attack it as a risk factor for now the one thing that everybody in the in the um, in America and Canada and the whole wide world is most scared of. Yeah, it's definitely I mean it's hard to take. I mean, we've done there's only so much of the COVID uh, you know, bashing of uh, vaping, I can take. We stopped curing it, curating it. I mean, I'll, we'll probably put some more up soon. But in the early days, I mean, Stanton Glantz was out on March 6th with a blog post. So, I mean, he just didn't miss a beat. No, it, it's because you, you know the old, the old phrase, uh, never let a crisis go to waste. That is an actual political operating principle for the Democrats. It, uh, how I wish that the conservatives would operate under that principle sometimes, honestly, as, as unethical as it may seem sometimes. But, but it, you do not let crises go to waste. Here is a, a, a moment to strike, and maybe you can strike a death blow on your issue. Maybe you can, maybe this is going to be the way that you can finally get people to relent on something that they were fighting on. Um, so, you know, even if it was just something as simple as the distraction and the ability to mesh to, you know, two public health issues together, to uh, you know, public health bureaucrat wish list items together. 
you know, it, it, they'll, it, activists on the left will, will always seize those opportunities. And I wasn't the one that said never let a crisis go to waste. That was Rahm Emanuel. It wasn't, you know, we don't, the conservatives didn't make that quote up from him. Um, he said it. And use a crisis of a mass shooting in a state becomes yet another way to call for gun control legislation, mm. et cetera. Anytime there's something significant, anytime there's something that captures the imagination that gets clicks, there's always people on the left who are willing to take advantage of that to try to motivate their issues, you know, even, even further along than they were. And again, the right gets caught asleep at the switch on this, you know, whether it's vaping or pandemics or whatever it is. Um, I mean, on the pandemic. So let me ask you, who, who let, stood up and defend, who, who stood up and defended the free market during the pandemic? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to count my friends in the beginning and that I didn't have many. Yeah. Well, we did. Uh, and some have, uh, let me ask you this. What has been the impact in Wisconsin based on the lockdowns? Because I know that the governor there is particularly draconian. Well, we have just got an announcement that we have lost, um, we are expected to lose $870 million in, uh, in unremitted tax revenue. So $870 million is a lot. Um, we have 65,000 healthcare workers that have been uh, applying for unemployment. Healthcare workers, remember the whole point of shutting down the economy was to uh, avoid the surge at the hospitals? Well, we have 65,000 healthcare workers applying for unemployment. Um, we are losing approximately in GDP in Wisconsin $179 million a day, a day. We have dairy farmers that are dumping tens of thousands of gallons of milk a week. We have, you know, hog farmers in Wisconsin that have to either decide to euthanize their animals um, or try to find a way to keep them on maintenance diets, on your starvation diets. Um, we have supply chains being messed up from, you know, from the beginning of it to the end. We have small parts manufacturers that might be essential businesses, but their customers aren't essential businesses. We have restaurants that are going under, obviously, like everybody does. I just spoke to a man who, who, um, who handles crowd events, um, you know, festivals and concerts, and he doesn't think he's going to be able to have his business survive if this goes on another couple of months. Um, so, we have had we have taken a, a dramatic hit in Wisconsin because the governor does not want to look at the reality of Wisconsin's COVID situation and adjust his response to it. It is it is as if you know he's the hammer and everybody in Wisconsin is a nail, and he seems to either have zero empathy or zero empathy and and somehow sees our misery as is a political advantage. So how can Wisconsin uh, have leadership that has zero empathy because Wisconsin is the home of progressivism. And if there's one thing a progressive will tell you is that they own compassion and you're not compassionate. Yeah, well, I don't see how it's compassionate to deny, um, you know, little old ladies access to their loved ones as they lay dying in hospice. But that's what our governor's done. I don't understand how it's compassionate to, to take someone's a family business that they spent 20, 30 years building in every cent and tens of thousands of hours of their own time so that they could employ some people, give some people an ac access to, you know, a better quality of life. I don't know how it's ethical and compassionate 
to just light a stick of dynamite under that person and say that if you complain, you want people to die. I don't know how it makes any sense whatsoever to suggest that people who want to see their their livelihoods, you know, prevented, protected from being torn to shreds based on not data, but speculative models. And and not with any consistent logic, but in an arbitrary and capricious way. To 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 call those people, you know, people who want who are selfish and just want people to die, I don't see how that's compassionate. And I, I I'm waiting for someone to explain to me. But you don't get that. You get again flipping you get people being attacked for being monsters, and then everybody is scared of coming forward to defend the person who is who is standing up for the little guy because they're afraid of being called a monster too. And you know, you progressives, feel free to explain it to me how you're the people of compassion when you just blew up the lowest black and Hispanic unemployment rate that Wisconsin has ever had because Tony Evers decided that it's best for people to be poor, to be destitute, and to be without any hope whatsoever of being able to recover their livelihood when this thing is over. It smacks of nihilism. Doesn't it? We started with nihilism, Brent. And, uh, we'll, go, and we'll, go to a, we'll go to some Nietzsche here. So teed up, will to power. It's just a slight little quote uh, that I've got to pull out here. It might be hard to explain, but we're going to, Talk about it for a second. So what does a desire do with itself to become a virtue? Because, of course, virtue and the opposite of virtue is a vice, and all vices are desires, really, in the end. So if there's a desire, how does a des- what does the desire do with itself to become a virtue, to morph into a virtue? Well, it rebaptizes itself, so changes its definition of it, it does a systematic denial of its objectives. So basically, don't look here. This isn't what we're about. But meanwhile, go off and do it. So a total Alinsky tactic. And remember, this is Nietzsche. So you, you know that Alinsky got stuff from Nietzsche. I mean, I'm sure of it. Right. And then the last one, which is perfect, is practice in self-misunderstanding. So this is the desire that's looking to become a virtue. And what does it do? It goes out into the public sphere and it practices the art of self-misunderstanding. So layers upon layers upon layers of confusion. Think of the term liberal. Nobody knows what that means anymore. You know, layer upon layer. Progressive has had those layers upon layers. Social justice has layers upon layers, you know, of uh, self-misunderstanding. And so, you know, that's operating here with inside COVID right now is layers upon layers of self-misunderstanding. For instance, we are all in this together. Clearly, we're not because vapors are not included in that group. Oh, small businesses aren't included in that group. Little old ladies in nursing homes aren't included in that group. The only people who are included in that group are apparently people who support the idea of command and control of of our lives, of our whole society by petty tyrants uh, in government, progressive petty tyrants. And then, and and when you accuse them of it, they deny it. They, they absolutely deny the goal is total societal transformation. You know who doesn't? Elon Omar doesn't deny that. You know, a- a- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez doesn't deny that goal. Rashida Tlaib doesn't deny that goal. At least they're honest about it. But the progressives that are operating at the state level want, you know, want to essentially transform your fear into their righteousness. And if you call them on this. And call them out for their lack of compassion. Call them out for their lack of empathy. And, and call them out for their rejection of ethics. Then 
they what they'll do is flip it around you and just say you just don't care about people you want people to die and most people don't expect that and they don't have an answer for it <clears throat> and you know and it shocks a lot of folks who who you know put their personal stories out there and can get re- and can get those stories rejected by invective you know and hate that comes you know toward them we've had businesses attacked because a business owner showed up at one of our rallies or posted something on Facebook critical of the governor. And and so, you know, trying to be honest about how miserable your situation is, you're sort of throwing yourself out there and asking for people, you know, to help to support you and be compassionate and you're met with attack. Um, and, and you're met with, you know, people even trying to make sure that if this thing ever ends, you will never come back. We had a cardiologist in Wausau, Wisconsin, who showed up at a rally and a group of progressives had formed to stalk people who were posted on Facebook in the pictures, found him, and got him suspended. Um, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's going after businesses that advertise on RegWatch or advertise on my program, um, you know, and people who support the idea that, that we can both protect folks uh, who are vulnerable and maintain a, a vibrant society. Um, I, I don't know what the sin is in that belief, but the progressives have found a way to, to, to find, you know, to find that monstrable. Yeah. Allow me to, you know, add to that. The sin, I believe for progressives, the sin that uh, their opposition, uh, as much as that is, the sin is that we're getting in the way of their actualization of virtue. So they're, they've I think got- you're right, Brent. That's exactly correct. That is exactly correct because their, their virtue and you've heard them say this, you want a full fundamental transformation or destruction of capitalism, destruction of the nuclear family, a destruction of everything that Western culture um, has at its cornerstone, that is the stabilizing um, you know, cornerstones of our, of our society. And we're in the way. You're in the way. You know, um, people, those small businesses are in the way. Those big businesses aren't in the way. They're going to roll over. But the small guy is in the way, the guy who's pleading and, and asking for people to understand his plight and asking for people to put themselves in his shoes. He's in the way. You're exactly right, because the actualization of virtue, the virtue is the replacement of the society that they think somehow, um, you know, distances our, uh, you know, ourselves from, from you know, the radical egalitarianism they seek. Um, we stay, America, the ideas of America, the ideas of Western civilization stand in the way of, of them completing that quickly using COVID-19 and they're getting angry about it. Um, but I think you're exactly right. And I think I'm going to steal that line from you tomorrow. You, well, you can, absolutely. Um, I'm not a Mark Levin, so I won't say all those backbenchers out there always taking my stuff, you know, but, you know, fair enough. You know, but that is, that is, <laughs> that is definitely... That is definitely um, one of my things uh, that I've been trying to hammer home in the show is this virtue issue. We're in their way of actualizing virtue. That's why it is so dangerous. That's why they're fighting at the level they are, which is literally locking you up, uh, shutting down yeah. your, your ability to feed your and kids. And, and their foot soldiers are willing to, you know, to pick up the phone or go online and call the police and turn in their neighbor. And, I mean, we have got, I don't know how many times I've, and not just me, dropping the Stasi reference, you know, but how many times people have said exactly that. We have people who have been, who are willing to be the ones to make it difficult for that person suffering from getting any relief. 
And, you know, we've got this locally here where I live. We've got this in Madison. We've got this in Milwaukee. It's all over the country, you know. But without questioning authority at all, whatever happened to question authority? Without questioning the authority at all, just yeah. doing the bidding, even if that means wiping out our ability to sustain ourselves. Because, you know, clean slate, I guess, rebuild. Who gets to who gets to make the call? Because it's not going to be the same progressives who are narking on their neighbors. No, they're not going to make the call. They won't make the cut. No, I mean most of the herd won't make the cut. We know that, right? No, That's... they are the herd, and they are going to be called by the same people they are they are pledging allegiance to right now. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's let's start to now get in that point point where if we haven't already issued a trigger warning, let's do that trigger warning. <laughs> Oh, I'm gonna, so is a trigger warning. It totally is. So let's dive. I'm going to dive into uh, uh, another piece of work here. I've yet to share with our audience. Um, I can't say this author's last name. It's not there. His first name's Helmet. Uh, the book is written in 1966. Um, he was a sociology professor in the U.S. from Germany. Very big to-do guy. Uh, this book was recommended in The Fatal Conceit, which is F.A. Hayek. So, of course, you know, massive recommendation for this writer. The book is called Envy. And, uh, I mean, it's been out of print for some time. It's in my library. I pulled out a, a, a few little quotes because nobody talks about Envy. I, we know why that side doesn't. Our side needs to be discussing this a bit more. Let, let's just, you know, bear with me as we try to do this here. But until about, oh, sorry, wrong one. Until about 30 years ago, Philosophers often dealt with the problem of envy as one of the inescapable questions of existence. They sought to define its terms and to establish its phenomenology. The problem of envy in history of Western philosophy. So envy has been a massive, massive part of Western philosophy as a huge problem. We don't hear about it anymore. Of course, we don't talk about philosophy anymore, but those that do are not talking about envy. Here's Aristotle in his rhetoric. Aristotle perceives plainly the degree to which envy is felt only towards those who are themselves are equal or peers. Very interesting. What is, deci what is decisive is that we do not, <clears throat> excuse me, what is decisive is that we do not ourselves really wish to have what we envy, nor do we hope to acquire it in the course of envy, but would like to see it destroyed so far as the other person is concerned. So if we believe that some, so if they're, if they're, even if we don't even want it, we, we just want it destroyed so somebody else can't have it. I think that's, I think that's exactly what undergirds the, the, you know, the nihilistic tendencies of progressivism in, a, in, in modern, in, you know, in modern culture today. It is envy. Um, I actually have talked about. I call it the the um, you know the philosophy of coveting that oh. the Democrats constantly promote. You get people to to you know feel as if somehow they are being denied something they deserve. Um, but the the more important point is the point about using that that feeling and using that that innate human um, characteristic to to unleash your desire to see someone suffer and if you envy so badly that you would that you would rather see someone suffer 
than even, you know, so if, if you want to see someone suffer because you don't have what they have, and I could tell you five simple things you could do to have what they have, a lot of people would pick destroying the guy who had it instead of working to get the same thing for themselves. I think that's very human. I think it's, it's, it's more human than it is specifically progressive. I think that the progressives just have done a really good job of weaponizing it. That's true. That's true. And allow me to make the one other point there, because it, it seems subtle, but it's actually huge, is the concept that is that envy is heightened when people around you are more equal. So it's only it's only the closer statuses to where envy really comes up. So you take somebody who's a janitor, you know, making eight dollars an hour and he's sitting on a park bench next to a billionaire. The janitor's not feeling envy towards the billionaire, but you have the janitor and then the supervisor. Uh, for the janitorial services or whatever, sitting beside the, and he's going to be feeling some envy. And that's, uh, it's a message that's been lost through thousands of years of human knowledge through the West, that it's, it's your close proximity where envy is the most danger. And so as the left and progressives keep screaming for equality, it actually increases envy because, you know, everybody just is poor and eventually you're beating each other up for the food, right? So the, the oh, base of envy know, but- is that. Sure. If you look at if you look at where you know if if somebody comes from a poor background and is a criminal, they're not going to the nice neighborhoods. They're you know they're attacking people down the street. So I think I, I think that um, it explains as well, perhaps, Brent, some of the odd reactions that almost seem incongruous, at least with what um, you know the the the, con- the American constitutionalist. Um, perspective might be, you would think that maybe more people in the United States would have, but don't, um, of, of their neighbors, mm-hmm. picking, picking up the phone, someone you like, and you're willing to pick up the phone and say, my neighbor just had six people over and they weren't social distancing and, and get the police. And this is someone who maybe you would ask to watch your cat when you're on vacation six months ago, but you're going to pick up the phone and call the police on that person. Or you're going to you know, you'll you'll be the neighborhood Stasi, um, and that potentially explains exactly the phenomenon that we see. That is, I mean, surely there are some social psychologists who probably have a better explanation for it than maybe I do. But well, and they're absolutely not free. They're not free to write it. about it, though. That's the thing. They're not free to write about it. Right. But that is, <laughs> it is just. So I think I think that is an interesting thing to bring up because it, it right now I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out why people who like each other in this situation where we've been we have been pitted against each other willing to pick up the phone and try to make it harder on their neighbor who they know is suffering so let's um so we're 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 going to be closing up here shortly but i've got a couple more questions and so we'll try to do it rapid fire if we can so first let me ask you and first instead of asking you let me just state a topic hydroxychloroquine (laughs) you want me to just go go all right, hydroxychloroquine. Um, I just talked about this today. When you take a look at the actual countries that are using hydroxychloroquine and you look at the protocols that they are using, and I'm going to try to get this out really fast, hydroxychloroquine as a protocol with azithromycin and zinc are used in the early stages of COVID-19, the early stages, where you see the most impact. This is in Brazil and in India and other places in South Korea where you see the most dramatic impact of the use of hydroxychloroquine and that particular protocol 
is in the early stages. When you let someone get sick enough that they might need a ventilator, and the whole and the whole process of hydroxychloroquine is to stop the virus from replicating itself. By the time somebody needs a ventilator, that virus has replicated itself pretty aggressively. So to have the United States, um, and I just saw this again, to have the United States claim that hydroxychloroquine is not an effective treatment for COVID-19 based on um, the, the results they are getting from people who are critically, critically ill and on ventilators where they, have, where they stand a substantial chance of dying is dishonest and it's dangerous and it's unethical and it is going to get people killed. Hydroxychloroquine and that protocol is, a, is approximately 20 bucks for the entire five days you would be on it versus what we are being told on remdesivir, which is gonna cost a thousand bucks, it's been fast-tracked. It has not actually had an impact on mortality rates, but we are being told by Anthony Fauci that this is the gold standard, that this is going to be the gold standard of treatment for coronavirus, really? $1,000, it must be intravenously given and you must be hospitalized to get it. So you have to be in the hospital. Hydroxychloroquine might prevent you from getting into the hospital, but nobody's saying anything about it. And I'm absolutely gobsmacked by that. I, I have to know why, I have to know why. And to my mind, and I don't wanna to be too conspiratorial, follow the money. That's what I think about hydroxychlor hydroxychloroquine. People should be using it. People should be using it at the early stages. I just spoke to a doctor today who openly advocates for it, and if her patients ask for it, that is exactly what she's doing. New York um, critical care physicians have been doing this before people get to the point where they start, you know, where they get to the point where they can't breathe any longer, and it is having an impact. And to simply reject it because either it's cheap and it doesn't have a patent to protect any longer, or because President Trump said something about it four weeks ago, is unconscionable. Well, I do agree. It's unconscionable. And in fact, even worse than that, I believe that immediately, because it was just, it was before the lockdown had fully solidified. I think it was actually, if my dates are right on this, it was right around the time that, that the guidance was issued uh, by President Trump, because he kind of got forced to do that. Regardless, he, it was good that he did. But either way, you know, there was a lot of pressure that was going on there. And, um, but it, it was, everything was so new. It, it still had not solidified into all the states shut down. I mean, I know in Canada, we weren't still fully locked down yet either. And when that popped up, being the fact that, you know, the drug, I mean, I immediately recognized it. I knew it was the malaria drug. I knew that it was 70 years. So if I knew that, there's lots of other people that knew that too. And it's one of those things where it just really felt like that the actual drug and this news posed a clear and present danger to the public health hysteria that was being yes, ruled out. Friend. Yes, because what if, what if, to, to what we're saying about hydroxychloroquine, it's not going to hurt you. So if we're totally wrong about it, it's, you're not going to be hurt by it, okay? Right. So let's say we're right about this. And it takes away the argument to lock down America and Canada. 100%. And it's because it is an effective treatment. It keeps people out of the hospital. The whole goal was to keep people out of the hospital. What if we're right and this works like it has been working in South Korea and India and Brazil? It takes away the entire argument. And if they admit there, and I can guess, I can get that maybe it was confusing back when President Trump first mentioned it. Okay. I think everything was confusing back then. But now, if you say, Yes, let's make sure that we blanket healthcare providers, nurses, people who are dealing with people who are COVID positive, people who have early symptoms, they're not serious yet. Let's make sure they get this protocol because it's cheap 
it's effective, and it's a, and it's easily um, it's easily available. They'd have to say they were wrong, and if they're wrong, and they're wrong to the tune of trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in a glo- in a potential global depression, oops, sorry, we were wrong. Take HCQ, um, you know, take some zinc. And you guys are going to be fine. We're going to reopen. Real sorry we wrecked your business. Sorry we let your mom die without you holding her hand. You know, we're, we're, we're terribly sorry that we got, that we crashed rural hospitals in the United States. We were wrong. Take the hydroxychloroquine. If they say that now, think about how dangerous it is to say, oops, we got it wrong. Yeah, well, and they never will. The left never says sorry. Neither do you know, progressive left. They never, ever do. And that's what makes them so dangerous because they have to double down on the destruction. And so when the herd is let out and free, they're going to be scared because a lot of governments are threatening that if the coronavirus, you know, pop, you know, if the if the cases pop back up again, they might yank them out and reinstitute the lockdowns. So you're not really being let free. It really is a terror that uh, is a continuation of the terror and it's a behavior mechanism. So it's going to force people to police each other not because yeah. they're afraid, not because they're afraid of getting coronavirus. It's they're afraid that if you are lax on it, you might trigger the governor to in other cases or whatever, and we might lose our freedom again. So you actually are going to have Americans and Canadians that are recently let free and out in this environment, and, and they're going to be pitted against each other, not to keep each other safe, but to police each other in order not to trigger government retaliation. Mm, that's interesting, and I'm not sure how all states work. Ours, uh, once the 60-day uh, emergency order expires, although we are in court, it's a very long and complicated um, you know, explanation of what's going on with the Wisconsin and the courts. Um, but I, what, how it's supposed to work is the governor has 60 days, and once the 60 days is over, if he would like to reinstitute an emergency order on the same crisis, he's got to get legislative approval. So at least we've got a modest a modest um, uh, protection in that, although he has uh, completely ignored that and has decided that he thinks he has the authority to tee up an administrator to essentially have 100% control over Wisconsin forever and ever, amen. But we'll see what our court says about that. I think it's not going to be good for Tony Evers. Well, so look, I just have to tell you, like, I've got crocodile tears for Wisconsin because you guys are the home of progressivism. Like, literally... Literally, John, ba- John Bascombe and the Wisconsin idea, the origins of progressivism is Wisconsin. Your The poison yeah. is from Wisconsin. We are, also, we are also the home of the Republican Party. Right? I know. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. But, you know, you want to have some fun, look up, you know, how everything. We're going to ban Confederate flags. We're going to ban Confederate war veteran statues. We're going to ban all of these things, you know, because it's offensive to somebody somewhere at some point in history. And in in Madison, Wisconsin, at the University of Wisconsin, the vaunted University of Wisconsin, um, where the Wisconsin idea was born. The Wisconsin idea is the idea that that experts, you know, should be controlling our lives and the university boundaries extend beyond the campus. Um, look up uh, Charles Van Hyde and and his in his enthusiasm for eugenics and recognize that the same progressives who have wanted to ban everything from Confederate monuments to you-know-what still have his plaque on Van Heys Hall at the University of Wisconsin. So, you know, the, the racist 
eugenicist progressives that were the founding members of this movement, they're still good when it comes to uh, when it comes to those folks. That's the practice in self. That that's ironic. the practice in self misunderstanding, Vicky. The practice in self misunderstanding. Good point. Yeah. So no, that's a, that's a strong point to make, and I mean it's one that it's it's really hard because they've they've just kind of salted the earth there, of course, because they're the eugenic racists that the progressives are, and it make it very difficult for us to talk about it. But it's actually real. They own truth. They say speak truth, speak truth, speak your truth, speak truth. I hate that word truth because we all know truth is malleable, but there are some facts, and facts are progressives, you know, own eugenics that it's a it's it's not a it's a it's a progressive phenomenon and so yeah, is public not health from the right well you know and i could go on and on about the the infusion of eugenics you know and how it is morphed into um you know you, uh, other types of sort of utilitarian inclinations in public health and public policy um but just look at public health I mean, you've got public health that has people who are practicing what they claim are, you know, independent bioethics who are arguing that weak people should be allowed to be euthanized, that, um, you know, that sick uh, or, or disabled people have a, you know, have a lower human score because they're not as, as useful. That's mm -hmm. not my, that's not, you know, my people coming up with those ideas. Um, you know, in, in Europe, it has been aggressive, the promotion of the idea of either physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. And, and, and you start to see those utilitarian philosophies. For, at first, they hang back and they say, no, we just want to help people who want to get out of pain. And then pretty soon it creeps in and it becomes an argument to not let someone make choices for themselves. If, if the progressives, if the experts have decided that their life is not quite worth as much as somebody else's and, and you know you can you can name dozens and dozens and dozens of cases like that that are that have been made public it's interesting because progressive is uh that is the side of the political spectrum that fights for a physician assisted suicide so they, they they desperately fought for it in canada it's a national policy just last year and they, uh, lowered, they lowered the age i think to 16 now you can be depressed and be a 16 year old and get doctor assisted suicide something like that it's just crazy. And I don't have a, a, a religious issue, though probably if I dig, dig around, it would be, but uh, it's got a, a, a real just kind of human issue. What's What strikes me so fascinating with this COVID response is that they literally made the argument that we need to shut down the entire Western world, right, to save 85-year-olds. But yet yeah. they're the party of, you know, euthanasia. So they're the party of well, euthanasia, but we must sacrifice everything for 85 year olds for what admittedly now is they might they were going to die anyhow that's what that's what that's what the science is saying clearly so, they you know but that's their line that's their that's and and you shouldn't allow them to get away with that lie andrew cuomo um announced that nursing homes in new york were going to be required to take covid19 patients nursing homes where you know, it, 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 an outlandish percentage of COVID-19 deaths have taken place. So what does Andrew Cuomo do? Does he protect those 85-year-olds? He says that we have to shut down the economy to protect, to protect. No. He orders nursing homes to take COVID-19 patients. It's, it's, it's shocking. Um, in our state, 
we're not testing nursing home workers. We're not, you know, nursing home workers frequently travel from facility to facility. We're not testing them to make sure that they are not spreading the virus to, you know, Wisconsin senior citizens in nursing homes or people who are very, very sick in nursing homes. So we have had a, a, our, our own share of a rash of nursing home fatalities here. So if we care so much about these old folks, uh, I'm not sure why you're not doing anything to secure and protect the nursing homes. At the same time, if you care so much about these old folks, why aren't you, why are you cutting them off from their families? Um, but I think that's just a way to, to make you seem harsh and, and, uh, and, and uncaring if you are somebody who's saying, I want my ability to support my family and have my livelihood back. You obviously don't care about those frail old people. You don't care. So call them on it. Say, hey, if you guys care so much about 85-year-olds or 80-year-olds, then, then why aren't you doing anything to secure the health and safety of nursing home patients from the nursing home workers who are getting them sick? I mean, clearly it appears that they've done everything they can to get away with to help exacerbate the issue. Uh, directly, actually, from China, because when they closed down Wuhan, they sent a couple 800,000 people directly to Los Angeles yeah. and New York. Yeah, and in New York, let's not forget that the progressives were saying that Trump is a bigot, and when he was talking about shutting down travel from China, and that you should respond by, you know, making sure that, you know, you welcome all of the people who, I think it's something like 4,000 a day, come into the United States from Wuhan, the Wuhan area, and a significant number of those go to New York, that, you know, they, were, they had aldermen saying that what you need to do is go up to someone who just got here, you know, from China and embrace them, and, you know, welcome them, because that Trump is nothing more than a, you know, a ranked bigot who just, you know, is just racist against Asian people. Uh, and then we found out in pretty short order that one of the smartest things that we actually did do was shut down travel from Wuhan to the United States. And I bet Italy wished it would have done that uh, instead of keeping the, the Silk Road open. So, but that's our this, progressive. Yeah, sooner or later, sooner or later, you just have to kind of just throw up your hands, I know, and just go, yeah, they're progressives and that's just the way it is. Um, Vicki, I've got, now, we just released today and I'm just trying to grab it here. So let me just uh, put us on the wide and So we just released today a video um, called Nurturing Virtue, and um, it's about four minutes, and I, I want to play it. And gives, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can run to the washroom. You can take a break. I'd like to spend a couple of more minutes with you if you've got it. Do you have it? Sure. Okay. Sure, absolutely. So, um, and, you know, same with you, you know, have a vape, that kind of thing. It's really important. Uh, the, the second part of this, it's only four minutes. The second part of it is a song. This is all about a song. Just the context here is that, our Anthony Fauci of British Columbia is uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Now, RegWatch has, you know, been interviewing, you know, public health professionals in Canada for years now, and uh, as well as UK, uh, not so much as in the US some, but not as much, you know, FDA is a little harder to get to. But um, here in our home province where I live, you know, this is my backyard, and this is a shot at the top public health professional in our province. And I think it's uh, richly deserved. Now, it's not a shot at her, actually, to be quite honest. Very specifically, this is a shot at the herd. So let me just get it up. 
Yeah, that's gonna, hold on. That's gonna echo, one second. Just heading my viewers off at the pass here. There we go. She's a Canadian physician who is the provincial health officer for British Columbia and clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. She's a specialist in public health and preventative medicine. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was reported that uh, Bonnie Henry had said that perhaps by some point this summer, Adults, family members, will be able to get together for an ice cream. That's what you can hope to look for in British Columbia. She is currently right now running the province of British Columbia. She has a progressive left uh, government in charge. So it's more like a collaboration. The NDP and the Green Party are leftist. So we're looking at March 16th to April 3rd. Short, compressed time, couple weeks. So this was published one month ago by local Vancouver artists, Phil Dwyer and others on SoundCloud. We have in the progressive organism, a desire, right? To create virtue of the lockdown and to sanctify the public health messaging and the messenger. This is called the Ballad of Bonnie Henry. And this is progressive fascist music in the truest sense true folk she comes on the radio just around three with the public health news for the folks of bc and to talk of a crisis of a scope yet unseen with an Is the real deal. 
That is the sound of progressive fascism. What? That's satire. It's not real. That song's real. They were serious? That song's real. It was written by uh, a, uh, a musician who's won the Order of Canada. The, and the they... lyrics on that song were sincere. Yes. I don't know what to say. Well, I don't know what to say. What's, I couldn't, I, I would have called that a parody. A parody of what? I would have called that a parody of the absurdity of the orders that your province is getting from Dr. Bonnie Henry. Yeah. Are you honestly telling me that that is not a parody song? That is 100% for sure a real song, plenty of news coverage played on the radio, written by... I suddenly... That's the I way, that's the have, herd, the herd, that's what they're appealing to, the I have herd. Sadness. I have sadness for British Columbia. I, 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 wow. Wow. That's, I'm playing that on my show tomorrow. Absolutely. That's I'll, unreal. I'll send you the links. Yeah, no, yeah. it's, it's uh, for certain it's for real. And that's what's so dangerous about it is that actually that is for real. That is the way probably three or four million people feel right now in British Columbia. I, I, I sent that to my mom last night uh, just after I pressed it. And, uh, you know, in one of the local, you know, suburban, you know, community groups and stuff on Facebook, she's like, I can I can't, couldn't share that. I'd get killed. They, they love her. They love Bonnie Henry. I, we're living in an idiocracy. We're living in a bad comedy. This is a bad comedy. That's, I, I, I don't know how, how really. Wow, you just yeah, I know it's really that's why we that's that's why we did that's why we did this video because that song is just outrageous. If if you don't see fascism in that, if you I mean just the sheer folk part of it, that is straight out of Bohemia. You know that's the Bohemian feel that was you know so powerful for the Nazis uh, was folk music in that manner, and it's and the the worst thing is that it's about public health. So, I mean, it's in hygiene. I mean, that is, I mean, straight out of 1920s and 30s. And this is the, this is the man, COVID-19, the ballad of Bonnie Henry recorded and released. Uh, it was a quick turnaround on the recording of a true 2020 tune, the ballad of Bonnie Henry. The song was written for BC's provincial health officer by Order of Canada jazz musician, Phil Dwyer, who is also a lawyer from Qualicum Beach. It features blah, blah, blah. Dwyer thought up the lyrics to the song after a concert at Colicum Beach's old school arts thing. He dedicated it to, he goes, quote, I thought I'm just going to pop this on the interweb because it's got to be better than looking at some clip of Donald Trump press conference, he said. So, I mean, they've got Trump dream syndrome everywhere. And so this song, and then they've got the lyrics right here published. Oh, my God. If you can, find a way to describe for our viewers why the hair on the, on the back of your neck went up when you heard that. 
When he found out that it's real. <laughs> when I, I guess I didn't think it, because it, 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 it takes the absurdist view and, and worships it. That should be absurdism, but it isn't. It's a happy reality for people. And I only would have ever ascribed that kind of thinking to people who are members of a cult. And I guess I wasn't quite ready to proclaim 3 million people in British Columbia as members of a cult. But I don't mean to insult your province. But yeah, that's cultish and dangerous because those people will fight your demand for your own self-determination. They'll fight you for it. They'll fight you to force you to be part of their, you know, their managed reality. It's bizarre. And I think that's why we're dangerous when those of us who question what is going on. Yeah. The people who are into this need us to, to be part of it. They, we, if, if we aren't, we threaten their, their new utopian managed reality. We're in the way of their virtue. Yes, we are. Mm. And I guess I, 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 I would have never imagined someone would have taken absurdism literally. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Um, yeah. So I, you know, there is, I don't have a lot of hopey hope questions here because, you know, my forecast for the next six months is very bleak uh, because the economic catastrophe here is going to be massive. And when the herd gets let out, there's a good chunk that uh, enough of the herd has got their eyes opened a little bit. But the problem is, is that uh, the progressives are going to slam down on them so hard and, and to pull them back into the box that there will be a bunch of dissonance that's going on. And, and so the issue here is this, is that when Americans and Canadians go back out into the world and they eventually see that they're like, maybe not in the first month or two, but, and I hope to God I'm wrong here, but, and I'll be happy to say I'm sorry if I am, but the fact of the matter is, is that the likelihood that 50% of businesses in your, in your town could be shuttered, like never open back up again or shuttered in a sputtering start in the next six to eight months. And people are gonna be seeing these devastating effects and the more poor people, the, you know, the, the lower social determinants of health and so forth, but, but they're gonna be pressed back into that box and they're gonna to have to deny their own eyes. And the progressive left has done a fantastic job over many decades, certainly in the last five years, forcing human beings to deny the realities of biology and putting that into law and then and all the social mechanisms that are in place for you to completely deny science and biology in your own brain so they're conditioned to being forced to deny what they know and deny what they see and that makes the mob very dangerous and heading into the presidential election with the heightened uh you know the heightened craziness is going to be there there is the potential for some real problems and i'm and i don't I don't think Antifa is just taking this one and sitting on the bench. Well, I think in, in the United States, um, because we are going to start to see, we already have started to see states start to open up. Even look at Florida, you can go to a bar in Florida, which means it's on my list of places to go. Um, in Wisconsin, it is highly likely that the Supreme Court of our state uh, reigns in, aggressively reigns in the governor's fascist proclivities. 
Um, you have states that never shut down and didn't, and people didn't just, you know, drop dead, like South Dakota, um, Iowa, which, which is just south of us here in Wisconsin, um, south and west of us. They didn't do nearly the kinds of aggressive policing that we did in Wisconsin. So in, in the United States, there still is competition between the states. And so you're going to start to see state envy um, as more states and more states and more states, you know, loosen up the controls. Also in states like ours and others, we're not the only one. Um, there's only so far you can go with these emergency orders before you need to have legislative approval. And then we're back to familiar territory. And familiar territory in the United States is Trump derangement syndrome versus normal people, right? So you're back to this. And I'm praying to God you're wrong. And this happens that I go back to my old normal, which is vicious partisan sniping because it is it, it, it sounds like um, a relaxing time compared to what we're going through now. So I am hopeful that we, that we have enough uh, reservoir, there's enough of a reservoir of people who still like freedom and are still recognizing that other states can, you know, they, they take cues, so let somebody else go first. But if other states can do this okay, I think we can do this okay. And we get back to politics as normal. Um, I'm fearful that that they now know that a public health crisis is is the key that unlocks the box of destruction. Right. But at least for the short term, I'm hopeful that because we're going to see pressure and competition from other states trying to outdo each other and reopening, that we get back to just, you know, me getting called uh, whatever, whatever, <laughs> because I'm going to vote for Donald Trump in November. And, you know, that's that's a, that's a well-worn groove that I'm comfortable with. So, so the that's old, what I'm hoping for, Brad. The old normal. Please, just call me a racist. I can take it. Just don't Please. lock me in my house. I, I was so happy when I saw Portland announcing that they were going to separate, um, you know, six-foot social distancing public gathering places for black people versus white people because of white privilege and all of the racism that is systemic. And when I said, I'm like, oh, good. We're back to woke progressivism. I okay, I'm familiar with this. This is this is a place I've been before. Right. I actually saw that as a positive sign, Brent. So yeah, yeah. you know, maybe I'm call me a Pollyanna. Call that is that is hilarious. That's a positive sign. Let me just add this one last thing and then and then we'll do the last question. And that is that um, the interesting thing that will be different is that this presidential election, the Democrats are gonna have to run on lockdown. They're going to have to run on pro-lockdown because they have to bolster the decision that public health, which is Democratic. I got to say this. Okay, they got to run on pro-lockdown. They've got a guy who is somnambulant. <laughs> but, but Tom Perez, the DNC chair, yesterday afternoon said that the DNC is planning for an in-person convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in August. Wow. So it's a sign. It's a tell that uh, even the Democrats are realizing that that you know the lockdown campaign has got to shift into something that seems more rational at this point. So, and even they see a convention. A convention that means bars, that means restaurants, that means big crowds of people, <laughs> and they're seeing that in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for themselves in August. Well, and I, I've been there the whole time, actually, because I've been saying since March, early March, actually, that there's going to be a presidential election. They'll, they'll have to let everybody out soon so they can get campaigning because they want to win that, yep. right? And, and 
you can't keep a, a Democratic uh, convention away from its bar. That's that is certain. <laughs> oh, you know what? That's about the only thing we have in common with the Democrats. Same thing is true Republican convention. There's no doubt. And I've been to that. Well, Vicki, look, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, spending some extra time with us today and getting into some of the tough questions. It was fun. Thank you oh, for asking. You bet. Just stay, just stay right there one second. And, well, that is Blessings. it for this edition of Reg Watch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com. And consider making a financial contribution to our coverage. It's easy. Just dig into your wallet, find a few dollars, and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to please follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.